You're listening to the Common Grace Podcast, stories of common grace and common people for the common good. What does the word religious mean to the church? Are we called to be religious? And as Christians, have we missed the point? Today, we talk with Bruxy Cavey about his book, The End of Religion, and see Christ's call for us to walk in love and freedom as we learn what it means to be Jesus-centered. Well, we're excited to have Bruxy Cavey on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, George. What a privilege to be a part of this. Our whole team was thrilled when they found out that um, you were going to be joining us. And for the listeners, Bruxy is pastor at uh, The Meeting House in Ontario, Canada. Uh, he's also leading a team that's formed the Jesus Collective, of which we are friends and really growing on the journey with that. And that's been exciting. And Bruxy is the author of two books that I know of, The End of Religion and Reunion. And uh, The End of Reunion, I've got right here in my hands, it's a brand new copy, you know, that crisp feel. And uh, we were looking at it, my brother said the end of typo, but I was like, no, this is religion, the end of religion here. And uh, this is actually going to be a family gift for one of our one of our great family members for Christmas. So anyway, um, we're so glad to have you on the podcast Bruxy, maybe you can give us a little snapshot of who you are and your background. Yeah, sure. Happy to. I think at one point you called it the end of reunion. And I thought that's a combination of both of my books. And I don't know if I've been writing long enough to have a best of compilation yet. It's like (laughs) after two albums, you already do a best of. I don't know if I can do that, but thanks for giving me credit for it. So yeah, so um, my my background, I I was raised as a Christian and I, I love Jesus the more I learned about Jesus, but I got to tell you that I'm one of those kids who grew up in the church and you got, I got to see some of the hypocrisy and some of the legalism, some of the judgmentalism. And I don't know if you've ever had a friend who, um, who you really got along with, but then your friend started dating someone who you did not get along with. And then you had to make a choice. If I want to hang out with my friend, I'm going to hang out, have to hang out with her too, or with him too. And uh, and so I've got to learn to appreciate this person and get along with this person. And that's always been like my awkward relationship with the church. It's like, Jesus, I love you, man. You're my guy. But this chick that you're dating, she's a piece of work, you know, and I don't want to hang out with her. And so I felt that way about the church and then realized, you know, the church is the bride of Christ and I'm part of the church. I, I'm not this detached entity that can sit back in judgment. I am part of the bride of Christ. And so rather than just be the person who's always deconstructing and who is always questioning and undermining, I, I, I push through that. I think many people need to go through that phase, absolutely. But that I'm one of those people who pushed through that, came out the other side and said, I want to be a force for good. I want to rebuild something more beautiful and be a part of that with Jesus at the center. And certainly the church is always so imperfect. Jesus is the only perfect one, but I have a new appreciation, not only for Jesus, but for the people who follow Jesus. Uh, I became a pastor by mistake. That's a long story. We can go there or not. And then, and and I was I was raised Pentecostal, which is like you know charismatic, uh, happy clappy. And then I went. I had a lot of questions. I couldn't get answers for. I think I burned out a lot of youth pastors and uh, with just question after question. So I went to seminary, and it was really a race for my brain. Whoever could get there first got my loyalty. And I had this beautiful reformed systematic theology professor and he answered all my questions with this really coherent systematic theology I fell in love with Calvinism and uh, John Calvin was my homeboy and so I came out of seminary 
probably more Calvinist than Calvin and like really systematic. I, I appreciate whether I'm systematic or not in my thinking. I appreciate people who are. They help me organize my thoughts. And so I became a Baptist pastor and that's conservative Baptist, like a John MacArthur kind of, you know, more, more conservative than Gospel Coalition kind of uh, Baptist pastor for a few years. And then I started to question a bunch of things again. You know, my questioning brain uh, flipped on. And I thought, you know, just be content where you are, Bruxy. I was probably too Baptist to be a good Pentecostal, too Pentecostal to be a good Baptist. And I thought, in this world, just be content where you are and appreciate the diversity of the body of Christ, which I do. And then after a few years of being a pastor, I heard about the, the what's called the Radical Reformation, which I guess I was sleeping that class in church history at seminary because I missed it in seminary. And I heard about this idea of the Radical Reformation or this group of people 500 years ago who said Christianity really suffers when we don't relentlessly keep Jesus in the center. And it was a radical concept, but it shouldn't be. It should be kind of like Christian faith 101, but it was. The Protestants had helped decentralized church tradition and put the Bible in the center, but they didn't go that last step to make sure that they kept Jesus in the center of the Bible that was in the center. And if you don't centralize Jesus, you get, you can justify almost anything from the Bible. And, and so the radicals kind of critiqued the Protestant Reformation said, you didn't go far enough. You got to keep Jesus in the center. And I, I tripped onto this movement and fell in love with it and, and said, I'm home. I'm home. These are the people of my tribe. I feel like this is long lost spiritual family. Maybe we were separated at birth, but you know, I'm not friends yet with everybody, but we're already family. And I, and I feel like I found my, my place to be for the rest of my life. And so that's how I got to being now the pastor of a, a radical reformation church or the, the meeting house, an Anabaptist, we call it Anabaptist church. And um, I'm, I'm the one who's benefiting the most and learning the most and feeling rejuvenated in my faith. And I love to share that with as many people as possible, how your faith can shift when you put Jesus at the center. I think that was a very long answer to a simple question. I'm sorry. I'll try and trim it down from here. No, you're, this is so good. We, we are so grateful to have you. And again, I just got to say, we've really admired and been thankful for your ministry and your message, what you and the meeting house and Jesus collective have been doing. It's just been incredible, huge blessing to the to the church. And, you know, I resonate because I have some similar background. Well, I have uh, been so impressed with, with the work that you've done, um, the message that you have. You have a, a definite gift of communication and you see from an angle of theology that I think is a huge blessing for the church. And so I just wanted to start with the question, you know, why did you write The End of Religion? Hmm, okay. Um, I wrote The End of Religion because I wanted to have a place that, that is a book, a place that pulled Christians and non-Christians and, and people on the border of faith, anyone who is united by an interest in Jesus, whether they were interested from a perspective of a believer or a non-believer, but they had some interest. I wanted to find a place for them to come together and learn together, learn from one another and learn from Jesus in a non-threatening way. Um, I, I knew that within Christian circles, there were a lot of books on how to talk to your non-Christian friends about Jesus. They were written to Christians, to the church, kind of how-to books, but there weren't a lot of books written to my non-Christian friends that I could just give them to, to let them read it or read it with them and have conversation with them. So initially I wanted to create a tool for people at our church at the meeting house that could just, they could they could start book clubs. They could hand these to non-Christian friends. Let's, let's read it together. And you can learn about the Jesus I'm learning about. And it kind of expanded from there to realizing that it's not just a tool to give to our non-Christian friends. It's a, because Christians need the gospel too, the good news of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus. 
I mean, church history proves it, that um, it's not just, you know, we dwell in light and they dwell in darkness and we have the truth and they live in ignorance and therefore we shall bring the truth to them. But all of us need to come back to the teachings of Jesus again and again. Um, the gospel or the good news of Jesus is not just the message that people are saved by. It's the message that saved people live by, at least should live by. And so um, so I kind of expanded the vision, not so much of a book I'd give to my non-Christian friends as much as a book I want to sit down with my non-Christian friends, read together, and and that I have to admit from the beginning, I'm going to be learning as much as they are, um, and we're all going to kind of refresh our souls from the teaching of Jesus. So hopefully, it, I, and I wrote this, the initial version over 10 years ago, and the good news is that since then, I've heard the feedback of that happening enough that I have a sense of uh, excitement and anticipation about this kind of rewritten version expanded edition that it's going to become that place once again so that's exciting for me you know a lot of people are moving toward christ or at least looking at christianity if if they're interested or open to talking about it from you know different angles you know what what's your hope if you had if you were talking to someone who wasn't a christian that was moving toward jesus like what would what would you focus on from your from your book? Okay, yeah. Um, one of the things that I think is the greatest, one of the greatest miracles of Jesus that is underrepresented whenever we talk about evidences or reasons why I might believe in Jesus, I think, is the miracle of his teaching itself. In that, all the other miracles I cannot test. I can point to evidences for the resurrection, but I can't test it today. Uh, it's we're talking we're doing history about something that happened 2000 years ago um i can i can talk about reasons why i believe he walked on water or turned water into wine we all have that one or fed 5000 people with some loaves and fishes but but i can't test them today uh, those become matters of faith but his teachings can be tested in our lives because they're meant to interact with us not just interact with people 2000 years ago his teachings are meant to continue to interact with us today and, um, and so I can test his teachings in my own life, on my own heart, their effect on my heart, and in the lives of people around me and in our relationships. And so here we, we have some testable miracles, in a sense, because uh, his teachings seem to fit with my needs and the needs of this world in a way that suggests that he's got insider knowledge of what my heart needs and what this world needs. It's as though I'm reading the owner's manual for human flourishing. And so his teachings, I can test that. And if I test his teachings in my life and in the lives of a growing number of people who follow them, and I see the results, now I have evidence to trust the other miracles. You know, so I test his, I test what I can test. And that helps grow faith in me for the things that I can't test. And, um, and so I find his teachings are the route in for myself and for, I think, many people with us who are skeptical but interested. And I say, well, let's just sit with his teachings for a while and see if they don't win your heart. And then once, it, once what you've tested passes that test, you can trust Jesus on other things. Not only trust in his miracles, but trust his view to, to the universe. And that's how I, for instance, believe in, come to believe in God. I'm a theist. Not because I just start out with an intuitive, there must be a God, and then figure out which religion represents him best. I don't start with God. I actually start with Jesus. He wins my heart. I start to trust what he says. And Jesus says, well, actually, there is a God. 
and he's 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 my dad and he's loving and he wants to be your dad too and and form a family and come and join me and i say okay i'm in i'm in because uh, jesus has been my route to everything else that i believe oh man that's a beautiful picture could you could you give an example in in your life of of how practicing the teaching and way of jesus has has been transformative mm yeah yes um it's interesting that Jesus teaches uh, love, respect, kindness, and forgiveness towards others in, in, a, in a way that modern psychology has really tapped into and tripped onto and said, this is important for, for maximum human flourishing and for the basic psychological health of a human being to receive forgiveness and also offer forgiveness for wrongs done. Not apart from justice and caring about justice, but but ultimately forgiveness needs to have the last word because we'll never fully catch up to what is just. We'll never fully make things perfect. So while we fight for justice, forgiveness has to be kind of the, the ultimate playing card that we it's our ace of spades that finally sets things right when we can't make everything right, which we never will fully get there. And, you know, psychologists say that receiving forgiveness and then giving forgiveness is that, that thing that we need when we have imperfect imperfect people coming together in imperfect structures with imperfect relationships. And this was so Jesus. He was there ahead of any scientific data, any sociological theories, just saying forgiveness has to be number one. You have to receive forgiveness first so you know what it's like to be forgiven. And that also puts you in a position of humility to say, I'm a forgiven person. So now on the other side of that, I just live every day with gratitude and that leads to joy and delight in the little things because it's like someone who's had a near-death experience and then they come back and they say, wow, I, I appreciate everything differently. And, and forgiveness, receiving God's forgiveness can have that effect. So that, yeah, that's grace. He just gives you this, he front end loads forgiveness and, and gratitude becomes the only appropriate response to grace is to say, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm grateful for life. And then we move into our day differently. Now we move into our day having been forgiven to just be a forgiving person. Uh, we want to offer forgiveness graciously and broadly. And that that changes me, but then it changes how I interact with others. And it has the potential then to spread that, like a positive virus, to spread the, the offering of forgiveness to others in radical ways that can begin to change our systems of relationship as well as individual relationships. And that's just one example of Christ's relentless teaching on forgiveness and he, and, and he has so many details about it because he'd focus on it so much that tells me he, he knows what humankind needs thousands of years before the psychologists knew. He knows, he knows like, like you said earlier, there's a framework for human flourishing that he lays out. Yes, yes. And it's so beautiful. And you know, Christians and non-Christians can recognize this. I had uh, an atheist come to our church. I've had some version of this encounter many times, but I'm just thinking of one of the first times it happened a lot of years ago, he came to the meeting house and um, he, he was, he was an atheist. And he also saw himself as kind of the opposite of, of, of a Christian. He was a Wiccan priest. He was transgender and he was an atheist. And, um, and so he, and he wanted me to know this. He said, Rusty, it's important that, you know, I am a transgender Wiccan priest and, and that's really different to what you're doing here. And I'm going, okay, be cool. That's, that's how you see that it's you define your difference, how you define your difference. And he says, and therefore, I want to give you some money. Now, this was really interesting because money is one of those things that actually says, no, I believe enough 
in what this group is doing that yeah, I'm going to take my blood, sweat and tears that money symbolizes and give it. And he just handed me a $20 bill. It was not a big deal, but he said, this is symbolic. I want to put this in your hands. He had come and sat through a service. And after the service, he put this in my hands. He says, this says something. It says to me, I, I don't know if I want to follow Jesus yet, but if you are helping other people who claim to be Christians be more like Christ, I see that as a good thing for the planet. That's a good thing for the world, you know? So if that's what your charity does, your mission does, is you help people who claim to follow Jesus to actually follow Jesus and become more like him, then I want to support what you're doing. Please accept this gift from your athe your new atheist friend. And I see that's, that's the beauty of what people can at least recognize in Jesus, even if they're not compelled to become his follower, is that if if people became more like Jesus, and especially the people who claimed already to be following him, everyone can recognize that would be a good thing for the planet. It's so winsome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What that yeah. that's just a, a beautiful picture of of um, of what you were talking about, practicing together and experiencing, and and then someone seeing that hey, there's value, there's worth there. Yeah, yeah, right on. The new chapters and additions to the the book, the end of religion. You know, there's uh, I have some spe a specific question about it, but in, in general, I thought uh, a, a question I had was, why do you think the message of this book is so important right now? Hmm. Yeah. There is, as we know, so much division, turmoil, judgmentalism, and a and on the bright side, there's a hunger for justice and for getting things right. I just think that we have history of people hungering for justice and trying to get things right without Jesus at the center. I don't know that it's going to deliver what our hearts hope for. We, we can change societal pinpoints. Uh, we, can, we can fight for a certain configuration of funding for the police or make sure there's body cams, or we can fight for a certain configuration of policies in politics. And we can, and all that can be good stuff. But but in the end, it changes the accountability structures on the outside. It does nothing for the human heart. It doesn't create intimate relationships of brotherhood and sisterhood across racial lines and gender lines and ages and stages and socioeconomic divides. It doesn't, whereas Jesus actually creates this family connection if we allow him and leads us into how to seek out people who are different than us, not just to tolerate people who are different, but to seek them out, to learn from them, to call them brother and sister, and to link arms and, and move together toward a focal point, which is not just the linking arms in a social cause, which is important, but once that social cause is achieved, then what? They'll just be another and another, and 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 but to actually experience heart change and to say, no, we are we are family permanently. Now, what are we going to accomplish together? So it's not just the accomplishing that unites us. It's not just the goal unites us. Jesus unites us, makes us family. Now let's move out together. And that, that shift, I think, is so important in the world today. It's what we bring to the table as we join, uh, join the fight for social justice and other things. We also bring a Jesus distinctive that creates family in a way that nothing else does. Um, and so I think that's one of a list of so many things that Jesus brings to the table that's just different. It's unique. It's so important. And, um, and religion often gets in the way of that. And that's why it's not just a book about religion. It's a book that's pointing out how Jesus is different than just religious institutionalism, which can actually increase the divide. And it's, it, it's so, so my hope is that people will see this not, not just as a, another kind of religious pitch, 
try this religion instead of that religion or no religion, but actually Jesus went head to head with the religious leaders of his own religion constantly. And so it's not a message of which religion is best. It's actually that you can choose the best religion and still be dissatisfied and come head to head with, um, with pushback against the true nature of what love should be and what truth actually is by people who are just trying to protect the institution. So it becomes a transferable rebuke. The head-to-head clash that Jesus had with the, the Judaism of his day becomes a transferable rebuke and corrective principle for the Christianity of our day or whatever religion someone is a part of to say some of the things such as institutional protectionism and hypocrisy and elitism that that sets up a paid professional holy person as the the um, intermediary between you and God and and the boundary demarcationalism that says who's in and who's out with the judgmentalism and all these things that Jesus confronted in his day become important for us to learn the lessons of and apply to our faith today. So I think it's, of course, it's, it's an important message for all time. If it's a message from God, that's absolutely the case. But I see specific reasons how for this generation, this message is going to be freeing and uniting and powerfully healing for us. Yeah, I, I just so appreciated it. And the message of your ministry, you know, I think this is a, this is a kind of a life message. But um, when you read the end of religion, and it's almost like you're, you're peeling back um, the surface stuff to look at the, the behaviors of religion. So whether it's someone who's grown up in a very strict religious background, and maybe has run from that, or they've turned politics or they've turned certain ideologies and philosophies into religious behavior. The book and your and your message almost function for me like uh, smelling salts that kind of wake you up to religion, but also like a perfume at the same time that's wooing you toward Jesus, like the real thing. So I just thought that was amazing. And I wanna I wanna go into like a little bit of your your Jesus centered theology before I do. Uh, one question specifically about the book, the, the chapter, The Irreligious Life. Would you, can, mm. would you maybe give us the heartbeat of that real, real quick? Yeah, thanks for identifying that. In some sense, the whole book is leading up to that chapter. And if anyone struggles with delayed gratification issues, just buy the book, read that chapter, and move on to something else. Uh, the Irreligious Life returns to the story of John chapter 9, which is the story of a blind man being healed which is covered earlier in the book, but it returns to that story through, and looks at it through a different lens. And that is through the lens of the reaction of the religious leaders to this amazing healing. When this man is healed, Jesus does it in a way that is, it's provocative intentionally to offend their religious sensibilities. He, he, do, he heals them on the Sabbath and, and that, that's problematic according to their tradition. But then he heals them in a way on the Sabbath that adds insult to injury. Um, in that he makes mud on the Sabbath when you're not supposed to mix things together according to the tradition of the elders. He sends him to wash in the pool of Siloam, which was actually being used by a religious festival, festival of Sukkot at that time. So he sends him into the center of religious practice on on that day. And that's where he's going to wash and dirty up the holy water of that pool. There's a number of things we cover earlier on in the book that Jesus does as a a spiritual provocateur uh, for religion in order for this man to be healed. And he creates quite a stir. But having said all of that, the reaction of the religious leaders in every instance, earlier in John 5, when a guy's healed from uh, being unable to walk and Jesus heals him instantly, we see the same thing happen there as well. In both cases, the religious leaders, their immediate response, their immediate maneuver is to question Sabbath regulation and whether this is acceptable and come to the conclusion it is not. 
they show no normal human responses of even just joy, delight, or inquisitiveness, or excitement, because this is a known person who couldn't see in John 9, and a known person who couldn't walk in John 5, known to the community for their whole life, just a beggar, and suddenly he can see a normal, just a normal person, an atheist in a situation like that would say, wow, <laughs> look at you. This is amazing. I'm so happy for you. I don't know how to explain this, but I, I, wow, I'm, let me give you a hug. This is huge. And there's none of that. The, the religious concerns of the religious leaders actually mutes their normal human emotional delight. And, and because it takes them out of themselves, it takes them out of the moment and into the rule book in their head, you know, just kind of, we've got to figure out what, how to judge this, how to assess this. And I use that as a microcosm of truly understanding the religious spirit, we could call it, the religious mentality that comes out of our hearts and into our heads, but it's, it's kind of not even in our, our heads are focusing on something outside of ourselves altogether. And that's the book that's over there and how that process can over time disconnect us from ourselves and from our hearts so that just normal human reactions start to disappear. And I've seen this, I've met these people. Unfortunately, I've been these people. And I, I know what it's like to not be able to be in a moment because I'm assessing, wait, I need to judge this rightly. And so I'm pulled out of. And that's why sometimes I think just decently healthy or unhealthy secular people have a, a certain authenticity to them that sometimes a religious person meets them and says, oh, I was supposed to come to them and tell them why their life sucks and why they should become one of us. But I actually love hanging out with them. They have a freedom that I don't have because we've turned faith in Jesus and following Jesus into something constraining that ties us down, which is the negative use of the word religion, which means to re-fasten positively, to secure yourself, but negatively, it's a return to bondage. And that's how, uh, I think that's what religion has become for some people. So chapter 26, the irreligious life is trying to identify this in people and say, do we see this pattern, the pattern of the religious leaders in John 5 and John 9? Do we see that pattern in our lives today? I think Jesus is completely freeing, but in the church, we see people struggling with some freedom and some bondage and some uh, some getting in touch with their true selves and their heart and their joy and their gratitude for grace and living that renewed life we were talking about earlier. But we also see other people um, just becoming increasingly judgmental and harsh and separatist. And and so I think Jesus is at work, but there's this thing that I call a religious spirit that is also at work within, I'm, within all religions, but we'll take Christianity as an example. And I want to call people to leave one behind and cling to cling to Jesus. If I can continue, there's a great illustration that at least is great to me. Illustrations are personal, but this really hit me. And it's when I saw the movie 1917. I don't know if you saw that movie or any of your listeners did, but it's it's a World War One movie, and all right, and it's it's artistically excellent. We don't have to go into the reasons why, but the. Uh, 1917 is a fascinating movie, but there's a scene in that movie that jarred me because in a war movie, you see a lot of people shooting at a lot of people, but they slow down the action long enough to let you just look at one example. And it's when a, uh, a pilot, an enemy pilot, his plane crashes. The pilot survives, but he can't get out. He can't get out of the wreckage. And then the plane catches on fire. And so he's, he's gonna burn to death in a slow and horrible way. But two ally soldiers see this and they have this moment of humanity. He's not the enemy 
to be killed. He's a man stuck in wreckage who's going to burn to death. We need to rescue him. And so there's this beautiful moment of humanity where they they pull another human being out of the plane and they save his life. They're no longer enemies, they're, they're humans. And they drag him away from the plane to safety. And it just lightens your soul for a moment. And then the uh, the German pilot, the enemy, he, he kind of regains a sense of who he is and where he is and what's going on. So he takes out a knife and he stabs one of his rescuers to death. And you think, what? That's inappropriate. You know, that, that's, that's not how a human being should respond. In normal human life, when, when someone's rescued from wreckage, when someone has saved their life, you don't respond by then trying to kill them. And, and so then it, it helps you see, oh, this is what war is. This is people who would normally behave differently, normally rescue one another, and then normally be grateful for that. Instead, just try and kill one another. War does that. And I thought this is, uh, not only is this very telling on the nature of war, this becomes a metaphor for religion. Religion is, like war, one of the few things that can get good and decent people who would be lovely to have as neighbors, who you'd want your kids to play with their kids, who love their family and their friends, and who would even risk their life to help other people. And it gets good and decent people to actually try and kill each other for an agenda that they've been told is important. That's what war does. That's what religion does. And it can do that. We have thousands of years of history, of the history of different religions, including the Christian religion, that shows us that religion tends to bring sometimes the worst out in people. And there's this quote by uh, this old comedian named Steve, uh, Steven Weinberg. And uh, he says, basically, on a good day, on a normal day, good people do good things, bad people do bad things. But if you want to get good people to do bad things, to do evil things, well, that takes religion. And uh, so chapter 26, this, the irreligious life is say, how can we leave that behind and, and just follow all the good that Jesus has for us? Mm. What does that kind of life look like? The, you're moving from irreligious, but then from the perspective of Jesus, what does that life embody? What does that look like, feel like, taste like? Mm. Yeah, but it, it is a, a beautiful life. Jesus, as I mentioned earlier to start there, Jesus humbles us by allowing us to see ourselves as forgiven people so that we can then go and be forgiving people. He embeds that in a daily prayer, a daily prayer, the Lord's Prayer that we call it, or the Our Father, they call it in the Catholic tradition, um, to pray, you know, uh, forgive us as we forgive others. And it's not, not so much a trade. It's like, oh, we do forgive others. It's what we do. And we're inviting your forgiveness as well. And it's a we prayer. We're doing this together. The Lord's prayer is not I forgive me. It's us. Forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us, which reminds me I'm a part of something larger myself. That's why it's the our father, not the my father. Uh, even though I may pray as a single individual, I remind myself with the very first word of my out of my mouth, our father, that 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 I'm a part of something. Then I'm doing this with, uh, with fellow family members stretching back through time and around the world. And so he, he calls me into that humility of being forgiven and then the delight of offering forgiveness and relationship to others. He shows me what love is and he teaches that love is the answer that we're looking for to heal the, heal the world. But he shows me what that means so that we don't all fill the word love. We don't pour into, our, into that word label all of our own sentiment and meaning. People have different understandings of what love is. So Jesus says, love is the way forward. 
but I'm going to show you what I mean by that. It becomes God's show and tell on how to live the loving life. And that's, that's worth the price of admission. That's priceless. That Jesus teaches you about love and then shows you how to do it, man. You know, because he's called the word of God, the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. That is, Jesus is what God wants to say to the world. He teaches all the time. Like he teaches when he's teaching, but then when he stops teaching, he's still teaching. He's God's show and tell, not just God's tell. So, so you keep watching, you know, he teaches on a topic. Well, then just keep watching or reading about what Jesus, how Jesus lived. And you realize he's still preaching in how he lives. So he shows us that way of love, love that we receive from God. He helps us understand who God is, that God is ultimately forgiving and loving toward us. And that kind of, that, that redeems our sense of self and sense of value. And then commissions us into the world to become people who love well and forgive well. And he does all this together and calling us together into this thing called the kingdom, which is a, a old fashioned word for, um, for the Jesus nation. You know, we're, we're part of, we're part of this new um, society, a society built around love instead of law and that, that wants to then beautify the world. And like any kingdom or any nation, we go to war, but not against people. You know, people are not the enemy. We go to war against systems and institutions that are built on lies, built on darkness and oppression. We never see people as the enemy, but all people as victims of the true enemy, which are some of the bad ideas and the spiritual dark forces that are working through that institutionalization. And so, yeah, we go to war like nations go to war, but in a completely different way, never against people. So we're spreading more peace. And the way we spread peace is our warfare against those ideas, lies, and institutions and systems. Um, so he calls, he gives my life purpose and gives me an orientation factor uh, around the way of enemy love that becomes, I become a peacemaker, not just a peacekeeper, but a peacemaker. And peace then becomes not just the goal to be achieved by any means necessary. Peace becomes the way I live my life and make every choice and interact with every human being. If you can't be, see me in this podcast, I'm, I'm doing my preach it sound, you know, my fist preach is going in the air, well. preach it. Oh, yeah, that is beautiful. Would you kind of maybe paint us a picture of what you mean when you talk about Jesus-centered theology? What, what does that encompass? What's the circumference of that a little bit for you? Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. As if someone's been in the church for any length of time and they've had a chance to interact with different kinds of Christians, you, you may have begun to notice that different churches have almost a theological subculture. It's not just their statement of faith. It's how they approach theology that is different. And they built a bit of a, a talking culture, a verbal culture around that, which then affects a lot of things about the church. Often as Christians, we just want to know what's that church's statement of faith. But there's a whole vibe and ethos that churches then build up around their statements of faith. And over the years, you may have noticed at least maybe something will resonate as someone names it. That's often the case. As I name some of these things, people say, oh, yes, I've seen that. I just didn't know how to, how to um, identify it. And that is, although all Christians will say Jesus is the center of our faith, uh, who, who, what Christian wouldn't say that? It's right in our name, Christian. And the I-A-N, you know, means we, are, we belong to or we're following or we're becoming like Christ. And so, yes, every Christian would say, well, Jesus is at the center of it all. But what we'll notice over time is that there are different centering values that different groups have other than Jesus that help create culture. And uh, for some, it's the Bible itself. Now, they will say, of course, we're centered on Jesus, but in their in their day-to-day -day conversation and focus, actually what leaks out is that they're bibliocentric. And there can be real value in that. And that's the Protestant Reformation that they're saying, 
it's it's protection against uh, tradition centric, where just the the traditions of humankind get in the way, and you start to make up your own stuff. Being bibliocentric helps rescue us from that, but. As I mentioned earlier, it doesn't go far enough because being bibliocentric can still allow you to um, elevate the Old Testament and forget we've gone into the New Covenant completely, and that makes the Old Covenant obsolete, which is a harsh word, but I didn't make it up. That's Hebrews 8.13. The Old Covenant is obsolete. We actually got to leave that stuff behind, man. Okay, it's over. It still exists today as a pointer to the to Christ. Every verse is redeemed rather than rejected because it points to Jesus, but we don't try and follow it. We follow Jesus. So being bibliocentric gets us halfway there, but then it becomes problematic. And we see that in real world examples from the violence of the Protestant Reformation. Here you have a whole bunch of persecuted Protestants who then finally get their own state and their own nations and their own security. And then they turn around and persecute anyone who's not Protestant. So they go to war against the Catholics, the Catholics against the Protestants, everybody kills the Anabaptists. And, and we realize that just putting the Bible in the center doesn't rescue from that way of violence. Um, others, if you think of the Trinity, would um, they'll put the Father at the center, in their theology, God's power, God's authority, God's glory, God's sovereign rule overall becomes kind of their starting rubric for how everything else, all the, all the dominoes that tumble, move from there. You've got to, first of all, protect God's sovereign glory, and then you'll understand everything else through that. And then other theologians will come in through the Holy Spirit and say, that's our gateway in. And and so everything's processed through um, charismatic gifts and experience and understanding. And all of these can have a kind of beauty. But I would say all of them are still one step removed from where we should be as Christians, which is to start not with the Father or the Holy Spirit or the Bible or church tradition, but with the Son. And Jesus becomes our gateway drug into understanding everything else. And, that, and the Holy Spirit just is the wind of God that blows us towards Jesus and fans the flame of our understanding of Christ. A Jesus-centered theology then allows us to get to know God because God is like Jesus, and he shows who he's like through Jesus. So he, Jesus becomes a filter for us to understand what God is like, and, and it's, he's our way of understanding scripture. We read our Bibles differently because Jesus has taught us to. The Matthew chapter 5 Sermon on the Mount, the six antitheses, Jesus saying, I've not come to abolish the law, but, but, but I have come to fulfill the law. Well, what does that mean? You got to keep reading. And he teaches us how to read our own Bibles, not according to the letter of the law, but according to the spirit that it's, we crack open the law and let the, you know, let the spirit out to release the, the, you know, the sweet smelling incense of the way of love. So Jesus says, you don't, don't murder. You've heard that in the law, but I'm going to tell you, don't even hate. Don't be angry even. don't. He's changing the heart rather than just giving an exoskeleton of moral behavior. He, he's changing, he's healing the human heart from the inside out. So a, a Jesus-centered theology then changes how I go into everything else, I think appropriately. I think that's, that's what Jesus is calling us to. At the end of his time on earth, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth, that means you need to listen to and pay attention to and filter everything through. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he says. Not just God in general, as we could populate the God concept with our own thinking and our own projections, and not just scripture. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to the Bible. Sometimes within Protestant circles, we'll talk about the Bible as though we should be talking about Jesus. It's the authoritative, inerrant word of God. Turn to the Bible as your authority. And Jesus says, no, no, I, I'm not calling you to a book. I'm calling you to a person. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then as we turn to the Bible, yes, but so that we can see Jesus and have a supernatural rendezvous with Jesus, that changes how we 
read our scriptures and then how we go and live our life once we close our scriptures. And so Jesus-centered theology, I think, is, is not only just good for the planet, it, it starts by being good for the church and helps Christians become the Christians we were always supposed to be from the beginning. And, uh, and then we can share that kind of light with the world around us. Oh, that's so wonderful. Uh, would you give us maybe some practices, habits, maybe resources for uh, learning to walk in a Jesus-centered way? Mm, yeah, yeah. First, uh, The first practice is gathering with others who have caught on to the Jesus-centered way, the Jesus-centered walk, and linking arms with them. So being a part of a church, listening to a podcast, feeding your heart with, with the community of the saints, so to speak, who are walking the same way as you and who have made this shift and relentlessly want to keep Jesus in the center because we've seen the ugliness of what the Christian religion can become when Jesus is decentralized. Um, that's, I think, the first step for, for many of us because we, we need the energy that we get from our brothers and sisters and we, we learn socially. Having said that, when we're by ourselves, then there's a few different spiritual practices. Let me just mention um, one or two. Both of them relate to how we use scripture. Reading the Gospels, that is the first four books of the New Testament, which focus on the life of Jesus. Reading the Gospels and reading his teaching, especially, but also see, see how he interacts. Notice how Jesus interacts with people on the margins, uh, the hurting people, that religi the religious rejects. And also notice how he reacts with the religious elite, the people who are in power, who represent the judgmentalism of the system. And you, I, I think, over time will start to be one towards his heart. There'll be things Jesus says you, you don't understand at times. They're buried in, in, in cryptic symbology or, or within a rabbinic puns or communication forms that might not be understandable to us upon first read. That's okay. If you don't understand something, just put it aside and keep reading. Because what you do understand, I think, will win your heart. So returning to reading the Gospels regularly, especially the Sermon on the Mount, which is three chapters in the book of Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, just returning there regularly becomes so helpful. When I do read uh, the teachings of Jesus, for me personally, I've incorporated reading and prayer together. So rather than just Bible study, and then I close the Bible, go away, and I pray as a separate thing, I do Bible open prayer, which is opening up the Bible, maybe to the Sermon on the Mount, to a parable of Jesus, story of Jesus. And I read that through once, just to make sure it's in my head. Then I start to pray, but I pray through the teaching of Jesus, the words of Jesus, line by line, sentence by sentence, verse by verse. And it becomes conversational prayer. So I haven't put Bible study aside. Now it's just in my head. I close my eyes. And I've got to think, because that Typical, our typical idea of prayer is I close my eyes and I think of stuff on my brain and I say it to God. That's really bad conversation. That's like, God, you know, shut up and listen. I got a lot of stuff to say. And it also puts the pressure on me to think of stuff to be a good conversationalist You know, God, while God quietly sits there and listens. And so for some people, prayer can be a lot of pressure. Like if you, in church circles, you go around a circle and say, we're all just going to pray. Everyone thinks something to pray as we go around the circle. For me, as an introvert, I, don't, I know I don't sound like one on this podcast, but for me as a highly skewed, almost dysfunctional introvert, when we would do that, I panic. People say, okay, everyone think of something to pray. And I think, man, I got to think of stuff. I got to carry the whole conversation. And my life's not that interesting, whether it's my needs, things I'm thankful for. I don't, I'm, I don't, I don't think about that stuff enough. And so I invite God into the conversation by reading a teaching of Jesus, one story, one chunk, one chapter from the Sermon on the Mount. And then I start at the beginning, I pray through it, and I read a line of Jesus, and then I pray about it. And I thank him for that teaching. I talk about how I'm trying to apply it in my life. I say, you know how I've messed up over the last 24 hours, and 
and here's where I, I need help. And, and things start to, lights go on in my life. I start to see his teaching interacting potentially with areas of my life that maybe it hasn't been yet. And then I, so I prayed a bit about that. Then I read the next line and then I pray about that. And then I read the next line and I pray about that. And, and I converse with Jesus through scripture, but that gives me a guide for my brain. So it's not just on me to, to carry a whole conversation. It becomes conversational. I hear the voice. I incorporate the voice of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus into, into my prayer life. And, and that is meant to be a daily practice. Remember in the Lord's prayer, one of the lines is give us this day, our daily bread. And you think, well, what about tomorrow's bread? Well, you pray about tomorrow's bread tomorrow. And so we, we pray for each day. So if I have a, a test, an exam on Friday, typically what I used to do is every day of the week, I'd pray, God, help me pass the test on Friday. But now on Monday, I can pray, Father, help me study well today and be with me and encourage me while I study. And on Tuesday, I pray the same thing, you know, and, and you know, by Thursday night, I can say, help me sleep well now that you've helped me study this week. And then on Friday, I can say, and help me write this well and be clear headed, but it keeps me in the day. And that's why I forgive others or forgive us as we forgive others. That's supposed to be a 24 hour prayer that's embedded in the same prayer. Every 24 hours, if I'm praying through the Lord's prayer, I'm thinking, who have I offended that I need to get right with? Or who's offended me even micro through a microaggression and I'm just holding on to a taste of bitterness. And if you're praying that every 24 hours, what a beautiful exercise and just letting go what you can let go or pursuing reconciliation where you need to before it gets too far down the road and too out of hand. Um, so the dailiness of a prayerful disposition with Jesus based on his teaching, incorporating that in, to me has been a game changer. And that's just one of a few different approaches I think we can take. Wow. Broxy, your leadership and um, your perspective are, are a gift to the church. Thank you for joining the podcast. George, this is a privilege. You've got a good thing going on here. Thank you for, um, for adopting me into your family. Yeah, we, we love you and your team. You guys are amazing. Just incredible. Thank you so much. Bless you, brother. You've been listening to Common Grace, a Whitewater podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions about this episode or have suggestions for future topics, send an email to info at whitewaterchurch.org. Thanks for listening.